Welcome, friends, to this day. The bustle of the holidays behind us, the gray of winter still stretching out before us. We look for the little sparks of light that remain, the brilliant blue of the sky on a clear winter day, the silver glow of the moon last night, bigger than it will be for months to come. The faces of those who love us, smiles beaming back. It is easy to be together when the spring's green carpet rolls out before us. Now, in the cold time, it is even more important. As some of you might know, I am a country music aficionado. Now, you might think that aficionado is too fancy a word to associate with country music, but I stand strongly in defense of the art form. One of my college friends had a theory that you could tell a serious genre of music from just pop and commercial stuff by whether or not the performers had to be attractive in order to be successful. Classical violinists, for instance, although they may wear lovely concert gowns to perform, do not really meet with greater success because of it. Pop stars, on the other hand, are almost entirely lights and flash and beauty, or at any rate, they would be less successful if they lacked the dazzle. Her point in all of this was that country music must be a serious musical genre because, after all, we don't love Lyle Lovett and Willie Nelson for their glamour. So I hope I can convince you that country music is indeed an appropriate reference point for platforms here at the Washington Ethical Society, where I know we sometimes take ourselves and our approach to ethics quite seriously. Now that I am here, you will sometimes hear about Felix Adler on Sunday mornings, and you will sometimes hear about Reba McIntyre. <laughs> ethics appears in many places. But along with ethics come ethical dilemmas, and I think the singer Randy Hauser has one. Randy is new on the country music scene. He has a beautiful voice and some great songs. The one I want to talk about this morning, though, is what they call his breakthrough single. Great song, soulful singing, good chorus. Bad basis for an ethical understanding of life. Randy is singing in this song about losing his girlfriend, a common theme for country songs, where the joke is you lose your girlfriend, then your farm, then your job, and finally, and most heartbreakingly, your truck. Yeah, someone your, your truck, your dog, your truck or your dog, right. Unfortunately for Randy, with his girlfriend goes his basis for moral living. Anything goes, he sings, when everything's gone. You ain't around to give a dang whether I do right or wrong, so bring it on. Anything goes when everything's gone. Randy, and, and I should be clear that it is just a song, and he was probably just trying to make things rhyme, but he details just how low he sinks without the stabilizing influence of his girlfriend and justifies it all with that catchy, singable phrase. Anything goes when everything's gone. It's a common theme in music, actually, or in stories. We lose love, and in our distress, we sink down so low that our lives become unrecognizable. 
I've been on the wrong side of enough breakups to know a little bit how it feels, and I don't want to minimize the emotions. But I think I'm more optimistic about the human impulse toward the good, more confident in our ability to retain what is best about ourselves, even when our beloved, or even worse, our truck, goes missing. The debate about what makes us good, whether it's girlfriends or gavels or God, is a long-running one. It's a subject of great conversation between the religious and the secular, as seen recently on buses all around Washington, D.C. The American Humanist Association, which has a national affiliation with one of our denominational bodies, the American Ethical Union, ran an ad campaign asking, why believe in a God, just be good for goodness sake? A Catholic group responded with their own ads featuring a message from God, why believe, it asks, because I created you and I love you for goodness sake. I have to say, I loved the fact that these ads got people talking. Anything that has us wondering and thinking, questioning, sharing with each other, especially about our beliefs and our values, is a good thing in my book. But you know, I wasn't crazy about those original ads from the AHA. It's hard to write a good ad, especially one that will whiz by on a bus at 40 miles per hour. And this campaign certainly caught people's attention. It got press and responses. It was all over the post. And from that perspective, it did just what it was supposed to do. But we in the liberal religious tradition must be careful, I think, not to define ourselves solely by what we don't believe or who we aren't. There is so much that we do stand for, that we do believe. So I think if I wrote a bus ad, it might say, whether you believe in a God or not, whether you are a Buddhist or a Christian or a Muslim, whether you speak in metaphors or live by science, whether you are a theist or a humanist or both, let's all be good for each other's sake. On the other hand, <laughs> that would be a little long to read as a bus went whizzing by, so maybe I should stick to platforms. <laughs> and that, of course, is where we are this morning talking about buses and country music and being good. That country song we talked about earlier, you remember its chorus? Anything goes when everything's gone. The idea that when we suffer a great loss, our morality goes right out the window. As I said, I'm more optimistic. I think our morality, our goodness, so to speak, is inherent in who we are, part of our makeup. And I have science on my side. Just about a year ago, Steven Pinker wrote a great article for the New York Times Magazine about the moral instinct, looking at some of the science behind what we understand as morality. It's been making its way around the ethical culture leaders. We know we're bound to like it because it cites Immanuel Kant in the third or fourth paragraph. Kant, of course, provided much of the inspiration for Felix Adler to eventually found ethical culture, so we're on firm footing. The article explores the idea of a universal morality, something that all humans are born with and that seems to cross boundaries of culture, age, gender, experience. Citing the anthropologist Donald Brown, Pinker lists a number of facets of this universal morality, 
such as a distinction between right and wrong, empathy, fairness, admiration of generosity. This idea of a universal morality really resonated with me, and I didn't have to go further than the next paragraph in the article to see why. Pinker talks about the morality that we see in the youngest children. Toddlers, he writes, spontaneously offer toys and help to others and try to comfort people they see in distress. My observations of children over the years have told me that this is true, that children do have some intuitive understanding of right and wrong, of wanting to connect, and more a desire to do right. The article goes on to examine the way that universal morality is still subject to some major cultural variations. It also explores the evolutionary basis for morality, the ways that behaving morally, gaining, as Pinker puts it, a reputation for fairness and generosity, may have helped our prehistoric ancestors and therefore led to some selection for people who were actually fair and generous. And the article begins to ask some questions about morality and religion, which we'll get to in a minute. But first, I just want to affirm how right this feels to me. The idea of a universal morality that we as humans are somehow wired to be moral. It's been popping up and buzzing around scientific circles for some time. Mark Hauser, the evolutionary biologist, wrote a book about it in 2007. He's joined by anthropologists, psychologists, and philosophers, all trying to figure out why it is that so many cultures have come up with some of the same basic moral codes. And joined by me, who is interested in science, but really just a reader of people. One of the great honors of being in religious leadership is that I'm invited into people's lives when they're facing difficult times and making difficult decisions. And over and over, I see people who try their hardest to do the right thing. They sense somehow what it is that they should do to be their most loving, fair, and generous selves, and then they work hard to make that happen. We have, I think, an innate desire to be good. And whatever our country song might say, that desire doesn't go out the window when life goes wrong. It's too much a part of who we are, too much a part of being human. And so it makes sense to me that this desire to be good, to do right, is wired into our brains, the result of millions of years of evolution and trial and error and that it's shared by all our fellow humans, by the whole human family, with, of course, some variances here and there. We may disagree on exactly how to be good or to do right, and sometimes those disagreements are profound, but I think that each of us does have a desire to do good. Indeed, I think it's this desire, this possibility of being good, that's directly related to the idea of inherent worth, which is so much a part of what we believe in ethical culture. When we ascribe worth to each person, we are affirming the possibility that they can behave morally, make good decisions, 
fulfill their highest potential. Of course, that possibility is not always fulfilled. People don't always behave ethically. They don't live up to that inner moral voice that we all share. I think our challenge as ethical culturists, as liberal religious people, is to believe in them anyway, to believe in ourselves anyway, to know that we have the possibility to do good, to affirm that possibility, and to do all in our power to help each other to fulfill it. We talk about eliciting the best in others, and I think this is it. Our charge as religious people is to believe in the universal morality that we all share, the inherent worth that is the birthright of every person, and to bring it out, to encourage it every way we know how. And as Pinker touches on in his article, if we can understand and honor that idea that we are all acting from that deep place within us, the place that wants us, wants to behave morally, we may be able to better understand the differences that divide us. Pinker points out that the golden rule has been rediscovered by religious tradition after religious tradition. So some of us are alike, too. It's still a good rule, I think, because it connects us to what we know to be true, to that internal moral compass that we share. So we started with country music, and now we're deep into the New York Times. And where does that leave our buses? Well, I go back to that phrase I wanted on a bus, the phrase about needing to do good for each other's sake, no matter what we believe. And in fact, I think that this idea that right action transcends belief is actually reinforced by the concept of a universal morality, a shared human impulse toward goodness. We might hold different opinions about how we got this shared impulse toward goodness, whether it's a result of evolution or an example of being created in God's image or some combination of the two, but I hope that all of us can agree that we have it. All of our religious traditions, from the most liberal to the most conservative, have found ways to reinforce that moral impulse. In early December, Ann Clayson, one of the leaders of the New York Society of Ethical Culture, came to speak here and talked about Adler's idea of coming together in ethical society so that we could essentially practice being moral together. That practice, the help of community, is such an important part of what we do here. As a religion, we help each other to listen to the moral impulse within us. But you know, every religion is not the same in how we help each other to listen. I spoke earlier about the morality we see in children, their innate ability and desire to show empathy. Even though they have this desire, though, children don't always know what to do with that empathy, don't always know how to really react in different situations. So parents teach their children. Our religious educators teach our children, coaching them on the finer points of ethical behavior. Most of us are familiar with the difference between authoritarian and authoritative parenting styles, that split we talk about sometimes. 
Authoritarian parents provide strict rules, but don't necessarily encourage conversation or explanation of those rules. They expect obedience because of their role as a parent. Authoritative parents, on the other hand, have expectations, but are more likely to engage in dialogue with their children, helping them to puzzle out new dilemmas and find solutions. Religions, I think, can be seen in similar categories. There are those religious expressions that offer only rules that encourage ethical behavior through fear of punishment. And there are those that provide a basis for conversation, a community with which to examine deep moral dilemmas. As the great religious educator Sophia Lyon Foss wrote, it matters what we believe. Some beliefs are like blinders, shutting off the power to choose one's own direction. Other beliefs are like gateways, opening wide vistas for exploration. I like to think that here at Wes, here in our liberal religious tradition, we are opening vistas, listening to our inner moral compass, and checking in with the community to see if what we hear rings true. And I want to be clear that I think we are joined in this by dozens of other religious traditions. That there are Christians and Jews and Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists doing just this. Finding in religion not a threat of punishment, but a basis for conversation. Finding a way to reinforce their inner morality, their universal morality, in a caring and challenging community. I think this is just when religion is at its best. Now, I know not everyone might agree with me. Indeed, Pinker addresses the criticism in his article, primarily, I think, from more conservative religious traditions, that understanding morality as hardwired, as part of our neural makeup, can relegate it to subjectivity, an element of our experience without grounding an objective reality. Pinker argues that morality still exists beyond us. He talks briefly about moral realism, which heads us off into a rich philosophical discussion that would blow our time frame for this morning's service. So I'll just say that part of his argument for the value of examining morality from a scientific perspective is that it helps us to know ourselves, to understand where our moral impulses come from, and to begin to understand the moral impulses of our neighbors, too. But even better than Pinker's argument, I think, is one from the conservative columnist David Brooks. Now, David Brooks and I are not always in agreement, but I do like what he shared in a column in the New York Times back in May called The Neural Buddhists. This one has been making the rounds of ethical culture leaders, too. We must like to talk about Ethics, it's funny. Brooks is discussing materialism, atheism, and the soul. But he gets around to the idea of universal morality, too. Over the past several years, he writes, the momentum has shifted away from hardcore materialism. The brain seems less like a cold machine. It does not operate like a computer. Instead, meaning, belief, and consciousness seem to emerge mysteriously from idiosyncratic networks of neural firings. Those squishy things called emotions play a gigantic role in all forms of thinking. Love is vital to brain development. 
Brooks talks about some of the scientific research around universal morality and the experience of transcendence or connection and says that he thinks this research will, quote, lead to what you might call neural Buddhism. He goes on to explain what he thinks will become part of our conversation on this topic. He writes, The self is not a fixed entity, but a dynamic process of relationships. And underneath the patina of different religions, people around the world have common moral intuitions. Here we are in a religion of human relationship, created by a founder who wanted to move past differences in belief to find an ethical approach to life that we could all share. I don't like to convert people without their knowledge or at least a little conversation, but I think that at the very least, David Brooks could have a good talk with us. Must be because we share the same moral instinct. And that's where I want to end up, after the country music, the buses, and a couple of articles from the New York Times, with the idea that no matter how we got it, we do share a desire to be good. It's part of our makeup. Our religion may reinforce that impulse. It may refine the particularities of morality for us. But in the end, it really just points us to what we already know, to what transcends our beliefs and our losses and what has been part of us all along. The drive to be good is a powerful one. And together, we can learn to listen. We close with these words from Felix Adler, not just country music, you see, from his founding address. He speaks about the aim of our Sunday meetings. First, to illustrate the history of human aspirations, its monitions and its examples, to trace the origin of many of the errors of the past, but also to exhibit its pure and bright examples, and so to enrich the little sphere of our earthly existence by showing the grander connections in which it stands everywhere with the large life of the race. Secondly, it will be the object of the lecturers to set forth a standard of duty, to discuss our practical duties in the practical present, to make clear the responsibilities which our nature as moral beings imposes upon us, and also to dwell upon those high and tender consolations which the modern view of life does not fail to offer us, even in the midst of anguish and affliction. And my 21st century reflection of those words that we come together to remind each other of the great moral impulse found in all humanity and to help each other to bring it to life. That is the commitment we make to each other and with patience, joy, and love, I believe we can see it fulfilled.